you should be standing on the north side of the South Carolina State House, in front of the statue of George Washington, which we talked about in the last episode. In this episode, we'll peel back the layers of the building itself. I'm Dr. Lydia Brandt, and this is Historically Complex, a tour of the South Carolina State House grounds, brought to you by Historic Columbia with a grant from South Carolina Humanities. If you're not at the State House grounds in Columbia right now, that's fine. Go to historiccolumbia.org monuments to follow along with an interactive map, to see historic photographs, or to get more information. Also keep an eye out for my guidebook to the grounds, which will be released by the University of South Carolina Press in May, 2021. In order to talk about what you see in front of you, we need to talk about what you don't see. And that's the first capital built here in Columbia in 1790. Soon after the Revolutionary War and the formation of the United States, the capital was moved from Charleston on the coast to the center of the state here in Columbia. Unlike lawmakers in Virginia and Massachusetts, who decided to build grand neoclassical buildings, here in South Carolina, legislators chose to build a pretty modest building you can find a tombstone just to the west of the State House that marks its approximate location today. This wooden building was always a problem. For one thing, it wasn't very grand, but more importantly, it was made of wood, which is not an ideal situation for a building that houses some of the most important documents for the state government. Following the death of South Carolina's most important and infamous politician, John C. Calhoun, in 1850, the decision was finally made to construct a new building that would be fireproof, but would also pay homage to Calhoun's legacy, representing the state at the federal level and defending the rights of slaveholders. The state hired architect John Rudolph Nearnsey from Baltimore, who designed a massive granite building with a huge tower at the center that would rival the new state house going up in Nashville, Tennessee. The tower was never built, and instead we get the dome you see in front of you. The old state house was moved to make way for the new foundations. The cornerstone was laid in 1856, and the statue of George Washington that we just talked about was purchased in 1858. And here's where we can begin to peel back the layers of what this building meant to the politicians who decided to build it. Underneath the ceremonial cornerstone of this building is a speech by John C. Calhoun. In this famous speech, which Calhoun delivered on the floor of the U.S. Senate in 1850, he asserts the constitutional right for white Southerners to own Black people. He accuses the Northern states of aggression and warns that the Union could be ripped apart by a civil war over the issue of slavery. Every portion of the North entertains views and feelings more or less hostile to it. Those most opposed and hostile regard it as a sin and consider themselves under the most sacred obligation to use every effort to destroy it. On the contrary, the Southern section regards the relation as one which cannot be destroyed without subjecting the two races to the greatest calamity and the section to poverty, desolation, and wretchedness. And accordingly, they feel bound by every consideration of interest and safety to defend it. If the agitation goes on, the same force, acting with increased intensity, as has been shown, will finally snap every cord when nothing will be left to hold the states together except force. 
He also praises George Washington in the speech, reminding people that he was a Southerner and a slaveholder. He says, He was one of us, a slaveholder and a planter. We have studied his history and find nothing in it to justify submission to wrong. On the contrary, his great fame rests on the solid foundation. I trust that in this respect, we profited by his example. With Calhoun's speech buried under their feet, enslaved men built up the thick granite walls that you see in front of you. Walk to the top of the steps so that you can closely examine the sculptures on the front of the building. Together with Calhoun's speech in the cornerstone and the statue of George Washington, these sculptures can help us figure out what this building meant in these early years of construction leading up to the Civil War. Within a year of purchasing the sculpture of George Washington, the South Carolina legislature brought Henry Kirk Brown, one of the most celebrated sculptors working in America, to Columbia. Brown built a small wooden shack on the construction site of the State House grounds and got to work carving the sculptures that you see on the north side of the State House out of marble. He carved two portraits of South Carolina politicians, Robert Hayne and George McDuffie. They're facing each other in profile, wearing kind of togas to remind viewers that their ideas are as old as ancient Greece and Rome. Beneath them are eagles, stars, and fasces, again echoing that ancient Roman symbol of the unity of government that we saw in the statue of George Washington. The choice of McDuffie and Hayne for these two really prominent and intricately carved sculptures on the front of the State House supported the ideas in the cornerstone and the Washington statue. These two politicians were colleagues of John C. Calhoun, and they argued in the state legislature, as well as in the halls of the U.S. Capitol, for white South Carolinians' right to own other human beings. McDuffie was a self-made man from the upcountry, and Hayne, a member of the Low Country's planner class. Putting them together on the front of the building signified that white South Carolinians should be united behind the ideas of slavery enshrined in the building's cornerstone. When Henry Kirk Brown took the job here in Columbia, he was hoping that it would end up being more than just the sculptures you see in front of you. Walk down the steps and look at the front of the building. Make sure that you can see the entire portico or that temple front on the north side of the State House. Look up at the pediment or the triangular front of the roof of the portico, just above those deeply carved capitals or the tops of the columns. Brown designed a series of elaborate sculptures that would have reiterated the themes and the sculptures on the front of the building, as well as the statue of Washington. He imagined giant female figures draped in Roman togas, representing hope, justice, and liberty. Surrounding them would be figures of black men picking cotton, harvesting rice, and relaxing in fields in classical poses. This series of sculptures celebrated slavery and argued dramatically in three dimensions at the top of this building for the importance of slavery to South Carolina's economy, society, and government. But when you look in the pediment today, you see that it's obviously empty. Henry Kirk Brown fled Columbia in the months before the Civil War and never returned. The pediment was never finished. Now we can get to the core of this building, the core of its meaning on the eve of the Civil War. This building was a temple to slavery. 
the sculpture of George Washington, those made for the front of the State House, and those which Henry Kirk Brown hoped would go on the pediment, all made an argument for slavery's timelessness, righteousness, and importance to the state. All of this was still a construction site when South Carolina decided to secede from the Union just blocks away at First Baptist Church in December 1860, beginning a civil war over the issue of slavery, just as John C. Calhoun had predicted. Go back to the statue of George Washington. Remember that broken cane? Read the plaque on the base of the statue. During the occupation of Columbia by Sherman's army, February 17th to 19th, 1865, soldiers brick-batted this statue and broke off the lower part of the walking cane. On the evening of February 17th, 1865, just as the Confederacy's loss in the Civil War was clear to everyone. This building, this sculpture, this place, which was intended to be a statement of slavery's importance to South Carolina and South Carolina's importance to the nation, was a target. Indeed, in February 1865, in the last months of the Civil War, the city of Columbia was taken over by Union General William Tecumseh Sherman, and it was on fire. The old state house burned, the walls of the new state house, still under construction, were damaged, and the statue of George Washington, still in its crate in the basement of the state house, was damaged. This building, this sculpture's insistence on the importance of slavery to South Carolina, were defeated with the Confederacy's loss and with the damage and destruction of this place, the Temple to Slavery. I'm Dr. Lydia Brandt, and this is Historically Complex, a tour of the South Carolina State House grounds, brought to you by Historic Columbia with a grant from South Carolina Humanities. In the next episode, we'll talk about what happens after the war. We'll begin at the Monument to the Confederate Dead, directly in front of the State House, closer to Gervais Street. See you then. This podcast was written by me, Lydia Brandt, Associate Professor of Art and Architectural History at the University of South Carolina. It was produced by Jake Irwin. The music was composed and performed by Jake Irwin. Special thanks in this episode to Adam Irby and John Malden from Ware Shoals, South Carolina.